morning, everybody. Uh, I invite you to take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 this morning as we continue this series on the Sermon on the Mount, the Upside Down Life. And here's what we read as we read these verses together. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Lord, we gather today in this beautiful, sunny Sunday morning. Lord, we've already been reminded as we ride over to this place or are at our homes this morning watching online that um, this is the day the Lord has made. Your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. We see it revealed even in beauty around us. Lord, as we look to you now, as we seek to um, interact with Scripture, we pray that we would be taught. Um, God, I, I love this passage. It's ministered to my own soul. I pray that that would be true of all those that are listening this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Marin and I recently were away for our anniversary. We were uh, out of state, downstate, uh, down south. And while we were there, one day I wore my, my jersey, which has on it a logo for the Philadelphia Eagles. I uh, liked the jersey, and I was walking around town. And I found out I had a lot of friends there that I didn't know I had as friends. And I remember we get, I was getting off a bus. We had taken a shuttle, and I was getting off the bus. So there's a guy getting on, he saw my jersey, immediately connects with me. Uh, I was walking, we, we were sitting at a table. There were a couple of girls that were crossing the street, and one of them happened to glance back. They saw me, and they broke out into uh, the Eagles fight song, Fly, Eagles, Fly. <laughs> it was so much fun. Um, and there were like five or six people, and I didn't wear my shirt in order to find my friends the first time. The second time I actually wore it, just like, like a badge I would wear around town, seeing who my people were that were there. And the logo uh, enabled me to have a connection that identified me to my new friends in that part of the country. My question this morning is, what is the logo of the members of Jesus' kingdom? Now, in a broad sense, all of these Beatitudes would be that logo. These are the things that Jesus says are the qualities that mark and identify those that are a part of his kingdom. But this particular Beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I think more than any other identifies us as individuals that are a part of Jesus' kingdom. I want to just review when we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking about this passage which has been identified throughout church history as the most uh, clear presentation of what Jesus' kingdom is all about. It has taken the title, uh, actually it was Augustine in the fourth century that first called it the Sermon on the Mount, 
And most speakers now, most theologians throughout history, often refer to it as just the sermon. Uh, In the earliest days following the New Testament, somewhere between 60 and 90 A.D., There was a thing called the Didache that came out, and the Didache actually is a, uh, uh, the subtitle of it is, is the teaching, Didache means uh, of the twelve, the teaching of the twelve apostles. And basically it was taking the, the, it was the training manual for the early church outside of the scriptures. At that point, a lot of the scriptures actually hadn't been all put together So they took what they had learned and they put these principles. And interestingly, the statement that is made in the beginning of the Didache says this. There are two ways, one of life and one of death, and there is a big difference between the two. That's almost a direct statement from Matthew 7 where it talks about there are two trees, um, one bringing forth fruit unto eternal life. Uh, there is, it talks about two gates, it talks about two ways or paths, and the Dilake actually was a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. This was the teaching uh, focus of the early church, understanding what Jesus said in the sermon here in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We've been looking at the first few verses of Matthew 5 through 7, the upside-down life, life that sort of turns our understanding of life on its head. And the Beatitudes are the values of that kingdom, the values of the citizens of the kingdom. They are individuals who are poor in spirit. They have learned their own deficiency. Uh, They are those who mourn. They have experienced loss and suffering. Ben talked about that, that this this is not just mourning over death of an individual, though it certainly can involve that. It's any dream, it's, it's any hope, it's a sense of loss, and, and God uses that sense of loss so much in our own spiritual journeys. They let go of their aggression and anger. We talked about that last time. Uh, they are individuals that are meek. And today, they long for righteousness above everything else. Beatitude 4, what they long for, I think is the identifying mark. It's the logo of of members of Jesus' kingdom. And the first thing we find as we look at this passage is that they long for one thing. This longing actually defines their lives. He says, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's an interesting turn of phrase because the two qualities in our lives the two need in our lives, the two deficiency in our lives, without which we cannot survive, is thirst and hunger. From the beginning of our life to the end of our life, we cannot live without water and we cannot live without food. And Jesus says, you can't live without this. If, if you are truly a member of my kingdom, this is the consuming, driving passion. This is the essential reality of the life of those that are members of my kingdom. And there is one thing identified here. He doesn't say they hunger and thirst for this and this and this and this. He says there's one thing that they hunger for. There is one essential thing. There's a book that I've read that I've really enjoyed. It's called Essentialism by Mark McKeon. And the book is uh, 
a focus on leadership and principles, and, but he makes this statement in it. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It meant the very first or priority thing, or prior thing. It stayed singular for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term and start talking about priorities. Somehow we would now be able to have multiple first things. Greg McKeon argues there needs to be one priority, one driving passion, one longing above everything else. Now this is, this is vitally important because we are faced with a multitude of choices every day, right? There are constant choices, and these choices are probably more prominent to us in our era of history than anyone else has ever faced. Peter Drucker, who was actually the father of the, the modern uh, management leadership development program, he actually was the first chair of the first program at a university in America that was actually training people in principles of management, it was a new enterprise in, 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 in training people and education. And as he was talking about this, this sense of choices that people have, here's what he said. He said, in a few hundred years, when the history of our time will be written from a long-term perspective, it's likely that the most important event historians will see is not technology, not the internet, not e-commerce. It is an unprecedented change in the human condition. For the first time, literally, Substantial and rapidly growing numbers of people have choices. For the first time, they will have to manage themselves, and society is totally unprepared for it. Now, talk to any life coach, and they will tell you that Greg McKeon and Peter Drucker are really onto something. You have a multitude of choices. And some of those choices have come just by living in the era when we live of an, of an industrialized age and a time of affluence and a time of, of unprecedented health. But there are so many choices that it's hard to manage your life. But what they are both emphasizing, and certainly this is the thrust of McKeon's book, Essentialism, is that in order to really manage your life you must have one overarching passion. There is something that directs your life. And so the question is, what is your passion? What is your objective in life? Jesus speaks to that objective here in Beatitude 4 as he talks about the one ultimate reality, one ultimate priority. Now, I want to play this out for a minute. And say, well, I, I, maybe, maybe somebody... Pretend you are with a life coach or a pastor or, or a, um, a therapist or, or someone who's come along and they ask you the question, what is it that drives you, that centers you, that causes you to wake up with a sense of excitement and expectation? What are you hungry for, thirsting for, craving in your life ultimately? And you might respond, well... I, I, I need some more specificity. I, I mean, in what area of my life? I mean, I mean I've, I've, I've got things I could answer for my career. I've got things I could answer for my marriage. I've got things I could answer for my, for my family. 
I've got things I could answer even for my own lifestyle, that, that I've got certain priorities and concerns and, and objectives and goals that I want to be working towards. But, but you've got to give me more specific than just saying, what's my, what's my passion? But your ultimate longing needs to be big enough for all of those areas. Or you might respond, well, well uh, but, but I need some more specifics in terms of what stage of life. You know, I'm, 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 I'm a middle schooler. So when you ask what's my passion, well, you know, I, I, I think my passion's going to probably be different as a middle schooler than when I'm older. I mean, it seems like that's going to happen anyway. Or maybe I'm a college student and, you know, well, I've got certain, certain, this is where I'm headed. Or, or I'm just, I just got married and we're just starting our family. Or, or my kids are, are older and now we're, we're looking to launch them. Or now I'm even starting to think towards retirement. And, you know, in this stage of life, you know, I've got different objectives. And, or I'm in retirement and I'm asking the question, what's next? I mean, come on, when you ask me what my passion and what's driving me is, it, isn't it dependent on the stage of life? No. No, it's not. To be a follower of Jesus says that there is a passion that goes through all the stages of our life, that goes through all the, the areas of our, of our life. All those areas we might have individual objectives for fall under this overriding. And what is this overriding thing? Well, Jesus says it this way. My people (laughs) hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, if you're honest, probably like most of the people watching online and most of the people in this room, you ask this, you're, you're having this reaction. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. What the heck does that mean? Well, that's what I want to talk about. Because this is really important. Because this is what he says we hunger for. We are, are parched for. That this is what is the foundation of our lives if we are members of Jesus' question. And if we don't get this question answered right, all your goals, objectives, action plans is going to be skewered as a person who wants to live as a follower of Jesus. So I want to tell you what it means in, a few, in, in the next few moments. But first I want to mention one other thing about this longing. This longing results in pursuing. It's not a passive longing. It's a longing that manifests itself in pursuit. You'll notice here in this same passage of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, 33, Jesus says this, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. To seek means to pursue. And the pursuit follows the longing. That the assumption is that those who long for it, hunger and thirst for it, are also actively engaged. So let's see what this one thing we are to desire. And the one thing that they are long for, we are to long for, is righteousness. Now, quickly, 
There are three primary uh, perspectives on righteousness because all of the, uh, that could be used here because all of them are used in the New Testament. The first of those is what is known as imputed righteousness. This is one option of what this is referring to when it says we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We hung for, hunger for the righteousness of Christ that has been offered to us. Simply what that means, I've talked about this many times, the imputed righteousness of, of Christ means that we who don't have our own inherent righteousness, we are unrighteous, we, we are not accepted on the basis of our own behavior and, and getting it right, Jesus did it for us. Jesus not only died the death we should have died in taking the penalty for our sin, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. And so our guilt, our unrighteousness is laid on Christ, imputed to him, if you will, and his righteous standing, his acceptance with God the Father is laid on us. It's an unbelievably grace-filled transaction. An imputed righteousness is that I stand accepted in Jesus in the righteousness that he lived. All that's true, but I don't think that's what's being talked about here. Matthew chapter 6, as a matter of fact, the whole gospel of Matthew talks about righteousness a lot. That is not the righteousness that he's focusing on. There's a second form of righteousness that's used in the New Testament that could be used here. And that is the one that is called societal righteousness, that there is a longing for others to be treated fairly and justly, to be looking out for others, not overlooking the poor, the disenfranchised, the forgotten. That's a possible rendering here, but that does not seem to be, even in the Sermon on the Mount, the primary focus of this term, righteousness. The primary focus is this thing that we would call personal, practical righteousness. Certainly, option two includes that. But personal righteousness is identified as the thing that we, we hunger and thirst for as members of Jesus' kingdom. If we are to be followers of Christ, which is what our goal is, we who are called into his kingdom are then to model our lives and to reflect his priorities, we would have the same craving that Jesus had. We would have the same thirsting that Jesus had. So what did Jesus say he craved? What did he hunger for? Well, he tells us in John chapter 4, in verse 34, this statement is made. My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, doing what's right, is basically to want the will of God to be accomplished in my life, to accomplish his calling for my life. We want to glorify God. We want to please God. We want our whole lives to be spent doing the will of God's. Everything else falls under that overriding one single priority of life. It rules your job. It rules your family. It rules your marriage. It rules your retirement. It rules your schools. It rules your major in college. It tells you, it, it, it directs you who to marry, who to date, where to work, where you live. It is the hunger to live righteously. And it involves a couple of things. First of all, it involves externally living. In Matthew chapter 6, the very next chapter, here's still part of the sermon. 
Jesus says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. There's a practice of righteousness. We live righteously. We, we externally do that. And there it's talking particularly about caring of other people. But he says, this practice of righteousness is one in which we show kindness and generosity and care for others. There's a beautiful example of this in, in Matthew chapter 1 with Joseph, who the betrothed husband of Mary, and it says in that passage that, and, 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 and Joseph has just found out that Mary's pregnant, they're betrothed to be married, which meant they are in a state of, of legal commitment to each other. It was way more than engagement. It was binding unless one of them proved during these months before they came together physically that they had been unfaithful to the other. And Mary had just apparently proven to be so because she's pregnant. And Joseph is now left with this, this heartbreaking scenario where the woman he loves has now proven herself false. The angel has not come to him at this point and told him, don't sweat it, you know, you can take her, this is of the Holy Spirit. All he knows is his wife is pregnant, she's just told him. And here's what he responds in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The first thing we find in him is that he is acting as a righteous man. But in his righteousness, he also shows mercy. He, he had every right, actually it would have been totally just, for him to put Mary aside and to then clear his own name. People aren't going to know why they've divorced. People aren't going to know, uh, separate, well, it was a form of divorce, aren't going to know what's going on. He, but Joseph says, I'm, I'm going to do this as quietly, as, as carefully as I can for the sake of Mary. I was in a conversation with someone recently, and they made a statement that I've thought about a lot, and I, I, I really embrace it. And he said, I believe... It is Christian for anyone in power to always seek to show mercy, to go beyond justice, but when you can, not to deny justice, but to go beyond justice, to, to act mercifully when you have power, whether that is a, a parent, whether that is a, a pastor, whether that is a civil leader, whether that is anyone, an administrator at work, a boss, that we are always called in our, to, to not just act just, but also to extend, seek to show mercy as well. Joseph did that. It was the kind of righteousness he showed. It was a justice that also included mercy, in this case, toward his betrothed spouse. It's an external expression, but it is also something internally driven. Matthew chapter 5, just a few verses later in chapter 20, it says this about righteousness. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does he mean by this? Because these guys were, their righteousness, their external righteousness was, was astonishing. They fasted two days a week, they, they never missed a church service. They were always there. They, they quoted the Bible all the time. They knew lots of scripture. 
I mean, they had all come in. Are you supposed to outzeal these guys? Well, Jesus tells us what he meant in Matthew chapter uh, 23, where he says to the Pharisees, So you're, you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're, you're hypocrites. He deals on the heart level, and he says righteousness is peeling back the onion skin and, 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 and realizing that we grow in righteousness as God keeps taking us deeper and deeper, peeling back more. There's so much of our lives when we first know Jesus where we are, are devoutly following Christ and our hearts are truly uh, desirous of living for the Lord. But we look back now Years, in some cases, some of us decades from when we first came to Christ, we realize, we realize how much of, of our lives were still controlled by, by selfish ambition, sometimes even in the Christian world, uh, that, that, that there, was, there was more onion layers, there's still more today, that we are growing internally aware, that we are continually seeing that's why the value, uh, seeing things in our lives that, that are making us become Focused on internal righteousness. That's the value of suffering, of failures, of even rejection by others. It helps us evaluate our hearts and go deeper, have more of the onion skin peeled back. That this idea of loving righteousness is loving the internal, that we're being changed from the inside out and growing in righteousness is having your inner person changed from pride to humility from sufficiency to dependence, and from serving you to serving others. But there's an incredible beauty in this passage. The beauty is this. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who do righteousness. He doesn't say that. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who long for righteousness, who long to live to the glory of God, who long to please the Lord. He says, it's your heart's trajectory that I look for. It's not you getting it right. It's not you crossing the T's and dotting the I's. It's not you being able to look back and say, oh, I, I followed unswervingly. Man, if you've walked with Jesus for years, you look back and you say, I can't believe how much self-centeredness still ruled my life. Still does today. I can't believe how many things I thought I was doing uh, with right motivation and there was so much of me involved in them. And Jesus says this to you, hey, I'm not asking you to do it all right. I'm not asking you to, to, to be this guy, this woman of perfect righteousness. I'm just saying, have your heart trajectory going my way. Have your passion say, Lord, I, I, I want you. Every follower of Jesus looks back with regrets and sorrows. Every single one. But Jesus is not asking or expecting that you would always do righteously. He is simply asking the trajectory of your life be toward pleasing him. 
That ties in then to the third thing, the blessing of this longing. They will be satisfied. The word here, uh, some versions translate it filled. It's actually, if you look at all the uses in the New Testament, which I had a chance to do, every use in the New Testament is talking about food uh, filling you. It is food satisfying you, that you have, you have, you, you've been uh, cared for, you're, you're filled, you're, you're, you're not still dealing with the, the hunger pains, that it is a satisfying experience. What is it that satisfies us? Well, what satisfies us is righteousness. He says, those that long for it will be satisfied with it. Well, what does this mean? Well, I'd suggest it this way. Psalm 46, Psalm 40, verse 8, sorry. David says this, I delight to do your will, O God. He says, I find pleasure in this. There's satisfaction and joy in me in doing righteously. Jesus is saying this to us. If your heart trajectory is say, Lord, I want the ruling passion of my life over my job, over my marriage, over my family, over my career, over, over, over every part, over my lifestyle, over it. Jesus is saying, then you will experience the satisfaction of that righteousness. Doesn't mean you'll always live righteously. You'll have lots of twists and turns. Doesn't mean you'll always eat the healthy food of righteousness. There'll be plenty of junk food you'll eat along the way. Choices you'll make, cravings you'll seek that should have been met in, in following Christ, and you turn to other things. But he says, if the trajectory of your life is towards me, if you're allowing me to be Lord of, of your life, you will taste the satisfaction, the joy of living righteously. He gives the opposite of this in Isaiah, where those that choose not to live righteously, he describes with these terms. Isaiah 57, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There's no peace, says my God, for the wicked. I was in a conversation with a, a woman in her early 30s a while back. And she's someone I've known for a number of years. And she has not embraced Christ. And we were having an interesting conversation. And, and she was asking me, you know, at my basically when I was her age, um, did you struggle with fears and struggle? And I said, I, I did, more than I think I realized or, or, or took ownership of. And, uh, and she knew as a pastor, we were talking about that, and she said, do you have regret? I said, I do. I said, I think my perspective of God at times was far more about people getting it right and measuring up and pushing people. I don't think I did. Uh, often, I did not appropriately present the beauty and the grace and the consuming love of God the way I wish, I, 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 the way I, I know him now. And she asked me this question. She said, well, then how can you be confident that Christianity is true 
if you still had fears and struggles and now have regrets. This is all I knew to say to her. I said, I do think I misrepresented in pieces the character of God, the beauty of God's love and grace, in my own striving to get things right, even as a pastor and as a person. But I said, it's that very reality that though I misrepresented him, though I misunderstood him in my own ways, he still wants me now. And I said, Why I want Christianity and why I believe in Christianity is because I believe in Christ. And I want to do life with Jesus because I like who I am with him and I don't like who I am without him. It isn't because I got it right or wrong that I love him. It's because even in the face of failures and misses and and, and mistakes and blind spots and, and thinking I was his mouthpiece in all these ways, thinking I had it all right. He still wants me. He's the safest person in my life. This is what I was He's the safest person I know. I never worry that he's going to all of a sudden change his mind on me. I don't ever worry that he's going to prove untrustworthy or get frustrated with me. I believe in Christianity because I believe in Christ. Here's what I, I think this beatitude reminds us. Let me say it this way. I want to speak to three groups, and this I'm going to close with. The first group of people I want to talk to is some of you are here, and you need to hear this beatitude as a challenge. Maybe to change the trajectory of your life toward this priority. And say, well, yeah, you know, business is business, and, and I'm ruled this way here, and, and, and church life is church. No, that's not. There's one priority. There's one overarching longing that has to be the umbrella over the Doesn't mean you're going to get it all right. But it does mean the trajectory of your whole life needs to be going towards righteousness and pleasing and glorifying and enjoying God. And maybe there's a challenge in that for you. For others... Perhaps this beatitude is for you an invitation to embrace the one that says, yeah, you, you enter my kingdom, you come poor in spirit. You see, it's for broken people who are sinners, who are broken in life and feel the need of someone beyond their, themselves to mercy them, to forgive them, to love them. And you see, you're not going to measure up. You're, you're impoverished. To see this morning and maybe losses of life are the very things God is using to help you see that you don't have it in yourself. You need someone more. That's exactly who Jesus' kingdom is for. Maybe there's an invitation here to embrace Jesus as yours. 
But the other group of people is her I want to just focus on for a moment. And maybe you need to hear this beatitude as an encouragement. Maybe you live for a long life. Maybe you're later in life or midlife perhaps. And you look back and there's regrets and there's misses and there's failures and there's blind spots. Jesus has only ever asked for one thing of your life. And that is the trajectory of your life being towards him. It was never about you getting it right. It was about you wanting him. And if you look back in your life and say, Lord, I just see so many misses. I see so many ways I would have wished this. And he says, daughter, son, I didn't ask you to be mine so you got it all right. I asked you to make me what your life trajectory is towards. And you need to find the beauty of this promise that he is saying, you are blessed. He blesses you. He says, don't make the same misses. You don't have to. Now you know. But embrace the fact that what I've asked for is those whose hearts are inclined towards me. There are many, many people in the Christian church that are older that are absolutely tormented with their failures. You've got them. We've all got them. But you can embrace the beauty of if your heart trajectory has ultimately been, Lord, I, I do want you. I know how much he wants you. And that he is still saying to you, it's grace you got in. It's grace you stayed in. It's grace I delight in you as a member of my kingdom. Wherever you are in those lists, seeing this as an invitation, as a challenge, as an encouragement, this beatitude is about a righteous God offering to do life with unrighteous people who simply say, Lord, I want you to be central and first in my life. I, I want to know you more. You are, you are the safest person I've ever known. Because just like Paul said in Romans 8, I'm learning more and more. You are for me. And you who spared not your own son, how will you not with him also freely give us all things? Lord, we look to you today. I'm asking you to take this simple study and apply it to people's hearts for some to be a challenge and motivation, for some to be an invitation that by your grace they might walk through and want to know this, this Jesus so different who's for us and who beckons us to embrace his grace and Lord, for those that need encouragement today, I pray you would encourage them with the, the beauty of this beatitude and this blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.
Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.